you know, you deal with that stress. You don't know what to do. You're bringing in all these resources, doing the wrong things and focusing on the wrong uh, items and doing everything wrong, right? So you, you learn a lot in those, those first couple of years, but it's the best thing you can ever do because your learning curve is like this and you're just getting better and better, you know? Welcome to The Real Deal, a commercial real estate investing podcast. I'm your host, Aman Shahi. There's a ton going on in the world right now, and much of it impacts real estate investors. The Real Deal podcast will take a look at what's happening and how it influences you as a real estate investor. Each episode is a 20-minute segment dedicated to distilling the day's most important news, so you can stay up to date on what's going on in the world and how it might affect the commercial real estate market. Welcome back to another episode of the Cashflow Capital Show. My name is Aman, and today we have a very special guest. His name is Matthew Owens. Hey, Matthew, welcome to the show. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Glad to be on. So, Matthew, give us your 30-second introduction, who you are. Okay. Um, so, I'm a CPA. I quit my CPA firm job in 2006 to go into real estate full-time. was a real estate genius for about a year and a half before I ended up getting punched in the face and uh, <laughs> taking a massive hit by the real estate market. Uh, since then, we've now flipped over a 1,000 houses. We have a little bit over 35 million lent out to flippers in different markets around the country. We do a lot of value add multifamilies and operational on that side. And then we also go through and you know hold properties for buy and holds and do a lot of syndication investing where we raise capital from different investors. We invest ourselves into different syndications, whether that's debt, single family, multifamily, short-term rentals, um, marijuana farms, uh, other uh, different types of medical device companies, different operators that we think are you know, performing in different ways. Most of it relates to real estate uh, in different ways and we really love real mm -hmm. estate, that's my background. But a lot of mm -hmm. what we do as an entrepreneur is find the right operators that ha are making money in their niche so we can make money along with them and support them with that. Of course, with the right homework and due diligence that goes into that, which is quite a bit, of course. Right. So, but yeah, it's a lot more fun than doing yeah. taxes and accounting for a CPA firm, for sure. <laughs> so you said what we, what is we? Um, so we? OCG is my company and uh, mm -hmm. my brother is my business partner. I also uh, have multiple people that work with me consistently, mm -hmm. different asset management, operations managers, all different types of people mm -hmm. that work with me consistently on my different projects in mm -hmm. different ways. Mm -hmm. So um, we bring in a lot of outside subcontractors. Got it, got uh, we have them as partners of our companies in different ways. Mm -hmm. So there's a lot of different you know, structuring components to that, depending on the project specifically that we're working on. So when you were working as a CPA, how did you get into real estate side of that? Like, how did you get into real estate? So, you know, at first I was banging my head against the computer going, how do I do stupid tax returns and audits nonstop? It's the most annoying thing on the planet to have to do that stuff. And I just wanted a way out, right? Like I was looking for a way to start working for myself or start making more money or doing something different because I was quite frankly, just bored out of my mind. The CPA stuff was not my personality. And, uh, and I also had worked, uh, doing a lot of audits 
on bigger apartment buildings and things like that for government mm -hmm. subsidized apartment buildings. So I kind of saw some of the inner workings of that and had a little bit of an interest in it. And actually my stepbrother came to me one day, you know, I was reading books on how to open a bar or how to like do different businesses going, I don't know what to do, you know, and he came to me one day with an opportunity to say, Hey, come to me to this, this class that I'm going to. And, mm -hmm. you know, you got to go check it out. And I immediately mentally was like, how much did you pay, dude? You got jacked for sure. You got jacked. I don't know what you paid, but uh, he ended up saying he spent like 16 grand uh, and wow. it was a real estate investment course. And I was actually, I, I, I was going to totally flake on him and I ended up going to the mm -hmm. meeting and was like, oh my God, this is for me. It was a whole real estate class for like two years on flipping and holding and self-directing your retirement accounts into real estate and lending and every aspect of you know real estate investing to give me a taste for what was out there um and i got my first deal under contract that i was going to make 30 grand on and i ended up making 20 and then i mm -hmm. um i quit my cpa firm job and just threw myself to the wolves and that was like 2006 so you know right and so of course i thought i was a real estate genius for like a year and a half before i realized <laughs> The market was, was what was you know pushing us along it wasn't me at all you know so yeah. uh, and then you learn those lessons it's probably the best thing that ever happened mm -hmm. to me though losing everything that early yep. um because yep. it taught me how to stand back up and have a, how to have a yep. strong mindset and push forward and you know do the right thing and and make sure my investors were taken care of and it's kind of funny that you said you were feeling like you were a real estate genius because i remember <laughs> when COVID happened i started investing in stocks that was my first investment I made like a couple hundred dollars. I'm like, ah, I'm a Warren Buffett. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. A lot, so, of, a lot um, of crypto millionaires during that yeah, time too, right? Yeah, so, <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, so you started from flipping or you started from multifamily before? So I started with flipping single family houses and my actual, my very first flip was a duplex. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, and we actually started off on that that trail flipping, but our whole thought pattern was, Let's go buy, renovate these and flip some and then hold some and, and do the Burr mm -hmm. method, you know, buy, yep. you know, rent, refine, rehab, rent, refinance, repeat, you know, yep. do that over and over and over again and pull our capital out and things like that. And that was our primary thought pattern with regard to that strategy. And we were mm -hmm. doing that along with our flips as well to keep the lights on, of course, mm -hmm. and learning how to run a business, quite honestly, even though I'm a CPA you don't yep. know anything about really running a business right away. And it really yep. comes down to how are you going to stick and move? How are you going to move when things are challenging? I, now I deal with 12 problems before noon on a Monday and I'm like, I laugh it off. Like, yeah, whatever. That's part of the business, yeah. you know, versus before, you know, you deal with that stress. You don't know what to do. You're bringing in all these resources, doing the wrong yeah. things and focusing on the wrong uh, yeah. items and doing everything wrong. Right. So you, yeah. you learn a lot in those those first couple of years, but it's the yeah. best thing you can ever do because your learning curve is like this and you're just getting yeah. better and better, you know. So, yeah, that's right. That's absolutely right. Do you mind sharing the story of your first flip? Um, yeah. So I ended up going and getting, you know, my first flip under contract where I was, um, I was going to make like 30 grand we, me and my stepbrother got it under contract and we went through and started to, um, uh, renovate the property. We found a team on the ground out in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, we ended up finding the property that needed renovation at the time, uh, from another wholesaler out in the market. And then we went and, and bought the property, started doing the renovation, cool. realizing that we were way in over our heads 
with regard to the renovation. It costs more money than we thought. We utilized our retirement accounts and stuff like that and do, doing different creative loans and stuff like that to do these things. Um, and then went and flipped the property at the end of the day. It took about double as long as we thought it was going to mm. take. Had to deal with contractor headaches, had to deal with property management headaches and things like that because we were buying it, renovating it, tenanting it and then reselling it to another investor that wanted the cash flow for it instead of mm -hmm. selling it on the open market specifically. Does that make sense? That makes total sense. Perfect. Wow. But you went to Tennessee. How did you manage the project? Um, so we had, we had a team and we all, we mm. flew out there, of course, and spent a bunch of mm. money on traveling, yeah. which yeah. wasn't worth it, you know, at the time, but at the, at, you know, we're looking at the areas we, we drove out there a, a few times, looking at properties, for example, developing the team members, developing the realtors and the contractors mm. and things like that before we, you know, pulled the trigger, of course. Um, but at the end of the day, you know, you, your, your team, is everything. And so you really need to get multiple contractors and multiple yeah. realtors and multiple team members in every category to start while you're building mm -hmm. your, you know, portfolio there and building your, yeah. your straight, you know, income streams. But, you know, yeah. yeah, going through that on that first flip, there's a lot of learning. Every little change, it's major stress. Now there's yep. a small issue that comes up and it's like, yeah, that happens. It's part of it, you know? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. Thanks for sharing that. And um, let's talk about the capital raising. You mentioned last time when you spoke, you raised almost like $150 million. Yes, yes, <laughs> over over the last 15 plus years, yeah. And how did that happen? Like who, first of all, who is your ideal investor? So, you know, to start off, our ideal investor is, you know, someone that wants to be passive, that wants mm -hmm. just wants a return on their capital, doesn't want to have to deal with the operations involved and things like that versus the person that's still building their portfolio up that needs to go do that active work to gain the capital. Mm -hmm. We're just looking mm -hmm. for the people that maybe they already have a full time job. There are CPAs like me that are working, mm -hmm. you know, a ton and not really, mm -hmm. um, you know, able to go and learn every aspect and do all the operations associated with the flip specifically. Right. Yeah. So those types of things i think was actually you know really key here to being able to you know um uh to, to raise the capital is understanding who my ideal investor was that mm -hmm. didn't have the time they were doctors cpas attorneys different people like that that really needed the help involved uh with regard to mm -hmm. you know the the um the, the operational expertise and the operational work done for them so we would go and do those types of things consistently and find those avatars and find the team uh, that would do it on the ground for us and manage them while we brought in the other investors on the other side. And so we started off with that 150,000 with our single family flips, just raising individual capital for these things over and over again. And then we started, then after that, we started graduating into multifamily deals. We started lending capital and raising money from private investors for those lending opportunities and things like that. We started raising money from banks and insurance companies and those types of investors too, those more institutional types uh, for our debt and different strategies. So can you share again, who is your ideal investor and why? I think okay, it's keep cool. learning now. Yeah. 
Yeah. So, so as far as my ideal investor goes, um, it's a passive investor that is looking for um, in op opportunities that they can rely and work with other operators that are doing the actual operations work, right? So mm. the people that already have the teams on the ground, that already have the knowledge on that specific, you know, uh, that specific strategy, right? Like mm. uh, fix and flips or buy and holds or multifamily or mobile homes or promissory mm. notes, the people that already they're looking for people that have those expertise that specialize in those categories, um, which is what I do. And then we go through and help investors to invest passively in those things and try to structure it so that they're protected with the paperwork and all that kind of mm. stuff and uh, involved. And so we're looking for the W-2 person or the person that's self-employed that doesn't have time to learn yep. every aspect of all these different strategies. And now by utilizing other operators that they can invest with, they can diversify their investments in all of these different, mm -hmm. these different strategies with all these different markets and all these different operators and asset classes to be able mm -hmm. to diversify into without having to do the work themselves. Yep. And yep. they get massive tax benefits for doing it. It's, it's actually pretty cool. I invest in a lot of these too, because I, I can't do all the work myself. I have yeah. to be passive sometimes. And I yeah. got an eight-year-old son and a four-year-old daughter and our five-year-old daughter now, and she just turned five. And, um, you know, you realize like what's important in life is spending time with the family and, and people like that, you know? So yeah. it's really key. And um, where do you connect with these investors? Where do you find them? Um, so in the very beginning, when I first started out raising capital, uh, I actually started raising and going to networking events. So I was going to mm. four to five networking events every single week for like two, three plus years, just developing relationship after relationship after relationship, mm. whether that's lunch meetings, chambers of commerce, throwing my own events, doing all different types of stuff where I would you know, go to meetup.com, find the calendars mm. for the city, go through and find all the networking events out there and then and the uh, different clubs you could join just to network with like-minded people that, and they, you start developing resources and finding new ways of making money. So not only are you raising capital from a lot of the people mm. in the room, but you're finding all these new strategies on how they make money in different ways. And now you can go and take their resources and give it to other people too, and help other people with those resources. Mm. And you become, you know, a massive resource for all different types of investors from the active mm. side of things to the passive side of things as well. Um, and be able to be useful to a lot of people, which means that you can make a lot of money in different ways, serving those people. So when you meet, a new investor who never invested before, how do you pitch to them that, that you can make money, you can get tax benefits, you can like, how do you like, you know, pitch your deal or anything to them? So first I show them the benefits associated with these types of strategies, right? Being able mm -hmm. to diversify with all these asset classes, operators and markets without mm -hmm. having to do the work, getting massive tax benefits, of course, for, you know, just buying an overall investment in the first place, right? Being able to get a cash flow stream that's going to beat out the, you know, typical stocks, bonds, mutual funds, and things like that, where you can rely on that and actually retire off of that income instead of trying to invest for capital gains in those traditional ways uh, and actually have control over your future through doing these types of strategies. At the mm -hmm. same time, I also try to convince them not to do it if they haven't done the right homework, right? They need to learn yeah. how the legal documents work and the provisions in those and the right legal yeah. structuring. 
how to do the homework on the operator in the first place, how to actually do the homework on the deal, the market, the financial model associated with that deal and their conservative or lack thereof assumptions uh, that they put within those financial models and what's reasonable mm -hmm. and what's not with regard to those assumptions. And so yep. bringing in outside help that can help them, attorneys and other operators and other people that invest in these to get their advice is key before they can start really investing. They may be able to dip their toe in and do a little bit, but without actually having um, you know, the understanding of the due diligence process, people should not be investing in the first place uh, into mm. these different operations because they're going to end up with operators that don't know what they're doing, that are not structured right, that all make all yeah. their money up front instead of on the back end along yeah. with investors with performance-based incentives in place. So the investors yeah. get paid first. And they're going to end mm -hmm. up in those bad situations and, you know, have some losses. I've had losses. There's mm -hmm. losses out there that occur, of course. That's yeah. why you put smaller chunks of money with all these things. So if I have 25, 50 grand across 100 opportunities and one of them doesn't really perform or I take a 10% haircut or something like that on it, I'm really not stressed out, right? Because I've yep. got all these other ones over here performing. And that's really the idea behind that is to diversify mm. so that you don't put all your eggs in one basket and aren't really mm. hurting. You got to make sure that yep. you're, you're, you know, covered there. Got it. Got it. And uh, what KPIs do you keep in mind when you like track the capital attraction? So, so really, you know, number of investors that I'm bringing in on a weekly basis into my systems, right? And then there's a nurturing period that occurs because people got to get to know you. They can't just expect yep. them to invest with you without getting to know you. So we utilize Syndication Pro for our investments, and then we utilize Active Campaign for a lot of our lead generation and email nurturing systems and contact management type systems and sales systems, right? And so it's a matter of, you know, what's our open rate on our emails and click through rates on our emails to see what kind of interest and traction we're getting on the content that we're putting out or the, you know, education that we're just giving away to people uh, to teach them, right? And then yep. the same thing with how many leads are coming in, how many people are in your pipeline that have expressed interest, how many people have committed and mm -hmm. how much money is that? What's your average investment that's coming in consistently? So now you can say with this much expertise, you know, um, output on the mm -hmm. marketing with this system that I'm doing with newsletters and social media and, and all the different marketing aspects, how many is coming in the door? How much, how many is interested? How many people, how much capital does that pertain to? What's my close ratio on the intake of leads versus the, you know, closing of those leads? How long does it take for that a typical lead to come in the door all the way through to when they typically on average invest with you because there's a nurturing period that occurs when they get to know you and who you are as a person and you know what you do and sometimes it's hey they're not interested in anything you're providing right now but you come up with that one opportunity and oh that piques their interest and that's what gets them to move forward with you on that but really it's developing the relationship over a period of time yeah. you know to really wrap that up because otherwise it's hard and asking for referrals how many different people are bringing you relationships mm. all the time and where are they coming from? You know, those are the key things to really dial in. But keep in mind, you won't ever with even with all these metrics, with all these tools, you won't ever be able to really gain a massive amount of traction 
uh, on raising capital if you don't know all the ways to protect investors and you don't understand mm. the risk mitigation techniques within mm. each project as a whole. You have to be able to explain that to people and explain to them, here are the risks, here's how we think we've mitigated them. You make a determination if those risk mitigation things that we put in place and that we've covered is good or not enough mm. for your personality and what you're comfortable with, you know? So that's really the key to the whole thing is understanding mm. that piece of it and uh, also understanding, hey, what are they really looking for with regard to, you know, um, an investment and commitment there, you know? So you're recommending being more defensive than offensive. Yeah, absolutely. Almost, you know, you're almost explaining to them, why you they shouldn't invest you're explaining all of the risks that mm. you can think of and uh, and sometimes you're going to meet sophisticated investors that are kind of come up with a risk that you don't realize right that you don't even yep. see and and that's great for your own education and always admit up uh, you know admit to those errors that you make or you know, those things that you didn't see because they help you a ton long term <laughs> yep. So um, you mentioned about newsletter, social media. So beside that, what do you use to stay in touch with the investors and how do you inform them? So one, I keep them up to date on all of our new investments as they come out and we do an email campaign for that, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we do that a newsletter that goes out every week to basically mm -hmm. new content, new information that's coming out. Um, always trying to help them, whether it's a podcast or a YouTube video or, or other content that, you know, has come up, um, some of our speaking engagements, those types of things where they can just get to know us. That's all that's happening is they're getting to know us over that period of time. And we're teaching them through giving away free information, you know, and great content for them to consume uh, and educate themselves with right on mm -hmm. a number of different topics mm -hmm. that they may be interested with. Uh, uh, to, to understand. Um, and then mm. uh, in addition to that, we have a nurturing campaign where if someone comes into our system, it's like, here's a four email sequence that goes out to them over a few weeks where it says, you know, hey, here's initially, here's what we do. Oh, by the way, here's an example of a couple of the strategies we implemented. Here's another mm. example. Here's some ways we help people with some free education, you know, and then mm. the next email sequence that comes out after those four emails is, hey, do you want to schedule a call with us and talk about how we can help each other? Right. So, yeah. and it's those types. And then that might be a three email sequence at that point. And if they don't do anything, then, then they go back into our email database and they're just marketed to on our newsletter. Right. We don't want to blast them forever on the yeah. nurturing campaign. People put in place re-engagement campaigns and things like that. And a campaign, whenever you have a new deal that you're coming out with as well. So all of those things are key from a systems perspective to get them on the phone to be able to have a conversation about mm. these topics, right? So, and when you when any new investor schedule a call with you, can you walk us through the a successful strategy call with investor first call? Yeah, for sure. So the the first thing you want to do is you want to shut up. At the end of the day, you want to shut mm. up and let them uh, give you as much information as possible. Let them explain to you what their interest is and how they think that you can help them at that point, right? You want to make yep. sure that you're able to uh, understand their situation without blurting out the mouth. Um, because uh, when you do that, 
and, and I have a hard time because I want to teach everybody stuff, you know, um, but yep. really you, you want to go through and be quiet, let them explain their situation and add value where you can and take notes so that, you know, you now, after listening to their situation, understand their three main pain points and you're just taking notes the whole time going, great, here's my solution for each one of those potential pain points and how I can help, you know, in that situation. And also what additional education that you might have on deck that you can send them to teach them about that particular pain point, because it takes, it's not going to take a 30 minute or a one hour meeting for them to, you know, want to invest or get enough knowledge base to feel comfortable. So you're going through and listening to them first, writing down all their pain points and also at the same time jotting down you know mental steps on how you can solve those pain points and just help them any way you can and yeah. and you know you're not selling anything if they're not interested in what you have then no problem give them a referral to somebody else karma will come back to you uh, if if that's what they need you know so yeah. that's really the key Beautiful. to the entire call as as the first first call and how do you screen the investors have you ever had any like experience that you had to say no to investor? Uh, absolutely. We had experiences where we had to say no to investors. So we, uh, I had one client that called and got paid off on a promissory note and we mm-hmm. he signed the release of the mortgage that secured his money by the property and sent it back to the closing attorney because we were selling the property and he got paid back. And he was extremely angry because he wasn't making any more interest anymore because he got paid back his money. And he called and started yelling at my team saying, I can't believe I'm not getting interest anymore. This is crazy. You guys are screwing me because uh, because I'm not getting my interest anymore. I'm like, bro, you signed a release. You knew it was getting paid off. And we, well, yeah. definitely, you know, we could have new investments for you. But after that, I was like, yeah, you're done, dude. Like you don't have enough knowledge base yet in order to invest. And so if they don't have the right knowledge base uh, and then they may not be very good investors for you, or if they're investing their last $20,000 or $10,000 with us, then sometimes mm-hmm. uh, or many times, if not all the time, I'll say no to those investors because mm-hmm. I don't want you and you, you should be having six to 12 months of personal living expenses aside, have all that ready before you start to invest your money yeah. into long-term investments that are locked up for a while, you know? Yeah. So that's usually when I'll say no is they don't have the right knowledge base or they have an emotional you know problem or screw loose there or you know they really shouldn't be investing because it's not enough for them to yeah. have that other money and protect themselves financially because not everybody thinks about that when they're investing is man I need to make sure I have money for the next yeah. six months you know yeah. set aside first yeah and I think they do not understand the risk behind that too right. Right. Yeah, it's it's highly risky for sure to not yeah. have that nest egg sitting there. And uh, which apps or tool do you use to attract more capital? So, so Syndication Pro is one of the one of the um, mm-hmm. softwares that we use that allows us to put all our different investments on our platform. Uh, we we just came out with a new website, MatthewOwens.com, that basically talks about all the all the different stuff that we do as clients, um, and then mm-hmm. our, our as as operators and uh, and bringing investments to the table for for our clients, uh, and then. Uh, we we use a number of different tools. We use Monday.com for marketing organization mm-hmm. and as well mm-hmm. as operations uh, organization. Um, we we use a number of different things like that. Uh, we use Google Sheets 
uh, through and created databases inside Google mm-hmm. Sheets, basically for a lot of our lending and a lot of our due diligence and processes and procedures there. So being able mm-hmm. to show investors those different systems that we have set up and how we're tracking this stuff really significantly increases our ability to close investors and bring in capital because then they see you know what we have in place mm. and as we are seeing into the the economy is getting crazy and nobody wants to invest what are the top three questions that you are getting asked from the investors so one how do i mitigate risk in you know kind of an uncertain economic environment and it comes down mm. to investing in assets that are risk adverse that are recession resistant for mm-hmm. example you know one of the fun all the funds actually that i'm doing right now carry zero debt and i'm yep. doing that on purpose because i right now even though leverage might be very great in an inflationary environment i don't want the risk of that debt in the first place i want to be r- running very lean and being able to make sure i protect my investors capital first and having you know 100% equity and no underlying debt in a situation like that really helps with you know capital preservation of course because you're backed by this hard asset without taking that kind of risk right investing in mm. recession resistant assets is key um and then I, I think some of the other pieces the bigger pieces are how do i mitigate taxes on my yep. investment right so first is how do i not lose my money and then how do i yep. get the most out of this investment in the first place uh, yep. which a lot of times comes down whenever you're buying real estate you can front load the tax benefits through what's called a cost segregation study where you break mm-hmm. apart the property into a bunch of little pieces uh, and then you front load that depreciation into year one and then so you can get a big tax deduction in year one for doing that now you have passive loss rules where you can only offset that against passive gains if you're not a full-time real estate investor and then up to 25,000 of ordinary income uh subject to an income limit so you can, my CPA mm-hmm. side is coming out and so you know there's things like that but there's massive benefits for doing this every year buying assets and getting big tax benefits that then offset all of your other income or a big chunk of it and so we do that mm-hmm. strategy and the the last one is look I really don't know how to do my due diligence on the investments what are the strategies that i need to deploy mm-hmm. in order to do it right to make sure that this guy i'm investing with over here is not going to steal my money that i know they know what they're doing that how do i make sure of all those things and yeah. it comes down to understanding the due diligence on each one of the segments within that particular asset so the operator mm-hmm the operator's team and doing the background checks, criminal checks, understanding their conservative estimates, their background, understanding mm-hmm. what their processes and procedures are within their organization that they plan on managing it, understanding the reporting requirements and accounting side of things that's coming out of that and who their team is that's backing them up to protect them in that case to make sure there's proper reporting for investors. So that's kind of the piece on the team and the operations and there's, you know, a massive checklist for that, right? And then yep. you have the operations on the actual asset in itself 
the property in itself and how that's structured, where it's located in the market, um, understanding the financial assumptions, what their value add process is going to be. Are they doing a major renovation? Who's the team on that? You know, and that it's going to make them perform. So every aspect of this, you're breaking down. And we have a 200 point due diligence checklist that we go through on every investment that we do. We can provide that to you guys. It's actually on my website, MatthewOwens.com. You can get it for free there and just download it. Um, and so there's a lot of things that people can do if they have a checklist and run through this a few times and then go take it to an attorney and say, hey, this is the homework I did. Is there anything else you can think of I should do? Take it to another professional investor that does this all the time and say, is there anything else I can do to learn those methods mm -hmm. in order to do the right homework so that you feel comfortable enough investing? So those are the key things, I think. Uh, you know, how to not lose the money, you know, how to how to make sure that I'm, you know, uh, I'm getting the right, the optimal benefits and then how to do the homework on these deals. Then um, how do you provide or what kind of resources do you provide to investors for the due diligence? Like when, when they come to you for the new deal, when you present the new deal? So typically when I do a uh, new deal, I provide, you always want to have the private placement memorandum, mm -hmm. the operating agreement, an investment summary, a video overview of everything, maybe a quick overview because people don't want to watch a 40, yeah. 50 minute video right yeah. away. Um, and then make sure that you have, you're thinking about all the risks that you can outline and say, here's every risk I can think of, presenting it to them yeah. up front. And then how do I... How did I mitigate that risk right within the presentation uh, mm -hmm. as much as possible, even providing the 200 point due diligence checklist that they can go through on you, you know, giving them background checks on yourself or criminal checks on yourself, doing all those things to say, here's how I should do my homework and here's investor references. So anybody who's trying to raise money should have a list of investor references or character references that they can provide to their investors that they can call. There's been a number of people that have called. Uh, my investors uh, all all the time to verify that, hey, I'm a good person and I'm doing the right yeah. thing and I got their back when it comes to the investing side. And you want to really understand how the operators think about mm. money, right? About about mm. your money. Do they think, hey, this is just an investment. If it gets lost, it gets lost. I told them there's risk. Or are they going to put their own money up first, take the hit yeah. if they can, and then treat it as what for what it really is, which is... Mm time that those yep. investors have traded their hours for to get that money right so yep. they so they're working for that that's hours of their life that's not really capital it's hours of their life and so you yep. know at the end of the day understanding that from an investor perspective really is key when you're raising money to make sure you pr you protect them at all costs so um last time when you spoke you also mentioned you attract or raise capital from international investors and how do you do that how do you find them so it started off with me doing a presentation in my home like 15 years ago uh, with uh, a, a couple of other operators. There were flippers here in Southern California that the husband was, uh, you know, a Caucasian guy and the wife was a Japanese investor. And they were raising capital for their own flips here in the U.S. from Japanese clients. And mm -hmm. so I met them. We started selling properties and turnkey properties to those investors and setting up translation services for those investors. And then it started snowballing from there into multiple liaisons. And I, I call them liaisons to help with the translation, help with the you know investments and everything when we're working with these international clients. And then, of course, dialing in the tax and legal structures, how to mm -hmm. get them set up here in the U.S., 
for proper compliance from the tax side, understand the estate planning issues that they may face and the legal structuring issues. Mm -hmm. So you can be a resource for them because what's the biggest thing stopping you from investing in another country? It's typically, how do I know my money? Like the government's just not going to go take my stuff or I'm doing this correctly legally that I'm protected, right? So if you become a resource and show them how to set up here and protect themselves here and structure it right, you just jumped over a massive hurdle to get them, you know, investing here. And then it comes down to building the trust along with that and showing Mm -hmm. them the benefits and worrying about, and thinking about the the concerns they have in their culture compared mm-hmm. to here in the U.S. because there's yeah. definitely different risk mindsets about what's risky yeah. and what's important in different cultures. You know, so yeah. you know, understanding those things and bringing in a lot of liaisons that help me develop these relationships, that help me as translators and things like that, is one of the keys to being able mm-hmm. to raise capital from international clients. And uh, what kind of like laws do you have to keep in mind when you talk, pitch your present your deal to them? So, so it definitely depends. So one U.S. SEC laws, making mm-hmm. sure your compliance there. But also, for example, in Japan, you have to think about the Japanese Japanese Ministry of Finance. That's like the SEC over there. So if you're marketing mm-hmm. to the general public over there, you got to go through the Japanese Ministry of Finance. If yeah. you're not, then you're typically okay. It depends on the country involved and their compliance requirements. But you want to make sure that those investors are never going to have a problem either from investing in something that you didn't go through the hoops and you know jump through correctly yeah. when you're bringing it to outside clients like that, right? You definitely don't want to market to the general public and that kind of stuff. You know, keep the same rules that you think of here in the U.S. from an SEC standpoint, uh, depending on the reg you know, D exemption or other Mm. exemption that you're typically filing under. So normally you don't have the limitations with promissory note, direct promissory note investing or direct property investing as you do when you're investing in syndications uh, Mm. from, you know, the other countries, I'll call it SEC equivalent. Mm. So um, what kind of tax benefits do international investors get? So one, they pay tax on what they make here in the U.S. They don't pay the tax on their international um, earnings, right? So just Mm -hmm. what they make here on the assets here in the U.S. So they pay the tax here. But like for Japan, for example, they were able to write off a building over five years for Japanese tax law. So um, now we do cost segregations and help them, you know, front load those tax benefits that way. But previously they were able to front load these things and be able to write off an entire purchase of an entire property over five years, which is a giant tax benefit for them. Right now it had to have certain requirements. Like it had to be built over 22 years old. Uh, It had to be primarily wood built versus brick built. You know, there's some Mm -hmm. specifics with regard to that, but they were able to take it advantage of some of the tax laws there. So it depends on the country. And there's a tax treaty within each country mm-hmm. that says, hey, the US and Japan have this tax treaty. Therefore, you have to withhold this much money, remit it to the US government. They do their tax return here in the US, and then they get their refunds or you know pay, pay based off of how much money they made here in the US, just like a normal mm-hmm. you know resident would, right? But they require you to do withholding Instead, just like you would on your paycheck when it's an international client, um, there are certain exceptions and and uh, exemptions to that, but it depends on the country. And if there is no tax mm. treaty, you got to do max withholding for the whole thing and, and mm. make sure they, they file here in the U.S. 
So do do they have to apply for a visa or something when investing in, or they can just do without any uh, U.S. Uh, status? Not, like typically not. What they're doing is they're mm. uh, filling out a form to get a U.S. tax ID number, and they mm. usually have to have a reason for doing that, like they're buying property or they're investing in a fund or something like that. So they, that requires them to have a U.S. tax ID number for it to be granted in the first place. And so mm. typically in that case, they're getting set up with like a W-7 form and some other documents that just get mailed in and they go through and uh, and, and get that tax ID number. And sometimes it can take a few months to get those things, you know, lined up with the, with the government and stuff. So I have a, one more question regarding that. I don't know if it's a tax question or immigration question can international investor invest in us passively and get the eb5 visa they they can um my mm. understanding with it and i haven't done the eb5 stuff in the past but mm. i've taken you know a few presentations on those and understand the structuring my understanding is the compliance associated mm. with the getting an eb5 set up for these investors mm. is really significant so yeah. The cost is high, so you have to deal with like $10 million, $20 million plus projects, $50 million plus projects for that stuff to really pencil um, mm. from the compliance standpoint and the cost standpoint of setting up that EB-5 and doing all the paperwork for that EB-5 program. So And create a number of jobs and things like that in that yeah. program too with who you're investing. Yeah. And I found that the investments that they invest into with the EB-5 program are usually not as great because they're getting mm. this secondary benefit associated with it. So, And it's not guaranteed that when they invest in those that they'll get the EB-5. So they might have their money in, never get the EB-5 and just be stuck with a bad investment, right? So there's some mm. problems there that need to be worked out for sure. So they need to like more due diligence and understand right. anything right. that happened. Who the operator got it, got is, it. all that stuff. Yeah, right. got it, got it. So what advice would you recommend to somebody who's starting in real estate? So if you're start, first starting out, it really comes down to understanding your resources and developing your resources. So the number mm -hmm. one thing I would do is start going to networking events, developing mm -hmm. as many resources, learning as much as possible, podcasts, books, live presentations, just immerse yourself in yeah. that education. And through that, you're going to learn all these strategies you deploy. You don't have to be a fix and flipper or a buy and hold investor. You don't have to do that. You can go through and do that as a piece of your portfolio, but you can go be a promissory note investor. You can raise capital. You can go through and you know deal with different operational expertise and just do pieces, pieces of the job, right? There's a mm -hmm. number of different strategies that you can deploy out there that aren't necessarily fixing and flipping single family home properties, which is what you would normally think you are as a real estate investor, right? You can do mm -hmm. multifamily and mobile homes. It's just as much work of buying a big mobile home park than it is a single family house and doing a fix and flip, right? Mm -hmm. It's literally, maybe it's a little more initially, but then after you get going, the bang for your buck is way better on the bigger projects than an individual mm -hmm. flip. So networking and developing those relationships education and understanding all the different strategies that are out mm. there and then understanding what you want to do how yep. do you want to build your lifestyle here um, and build the income streams to match what you want to do in your lifestyle if your goal is time freedom fixing and flipping or wholesaling that those are jobs that's not what you yep. want maybe you need yep. it to build some cash flow and build it up but why couldn't you if you don't need your own money to hold properties you can just 
buy the properties with other people's money and get a piece of it for doing all the work, right? Mm -hmm. You don't have yeah. to use your own money and flip yeah. to gain cash to then hold. You can hold yeah. right from the start. That's probably my biggest regret is selling the thousand houses that we flipped, you know? So we do have a good portfolio, but at the same time, yeah. like, yeah. you know, you, you look back and I'm like, I sold that for what in 2012, you know? So, wow. <laughs> yeah. So, and, um, what book would you recommend to somebody who's starting either mindset or education or anything? I think the the best book or books that I would recommend, one, Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon mm -hmm. Hill. It really, really does uh, yep. permeate with you over a period of time, especially pay, giving more service than you're paid for. And then you'll yep. never have to worry about money again. You know, yep. th that type of concept uh, within the book. And some of the strategies they deploy, if you really implement those in your mm -hmm. business, yep. you'll explode. Um, the other one is uh, How to Win Friends and Influence People by Dale Carnegie. I feel mm -hmm. like that book was massive and instrumental for me yep. um, with regard to understanding how people work and uh, how to you know, move teams and how to yep. build relationships and things like that and add value to people. Those two are my primary. And then there's a book called Traction. Uh, that's mm. the entrepreneur operating system that I think is by Gina Wickman. That's one of the key books that I've read mm. that teach you how to create this system within your businesses. Got it. Got it. And um, how do you give back to a community? So we, we run a nonprofit called For Investors by Investors that teaches mm -hmm. financial education and real estate education without a sales pitch. Yep. We actually teach a lot for free, too. We taught mm -hmm. a boot camp for a bunch of Marines from Camp Pendleton a few years ago uh, for six months just to teach them real estate strategies. And that turned into a really, really big deal uh, where my team member that's helping with that turned into a, a place to be able to create financial freedom for military members coming out of the military called White Feather Investments. And yeah. he's been killing it right now and helping all these military uh, members and vets create financial freedom through real estate and these strategies that we deploy. Got it. Got it. And I have, before we wrap this up, I have three more questions. Yes, for a mindset, just be ready for it. So what is your morning routine as entrepreneur? <laughs> so I, I start off with a cup of coffee and uh, meditating. So it's usually what I do first thing in the morning is I try to meditate. Um, I try to read a little bit and, and stretch as well. Um, those those primary things. I drink a, a, a glass of lemon a lemon juice every morning as well, uh, lemon juice and water, and uh, you know to try to clean my system up and stuff like that, and uh, just try to focus on my health first thing in the morning. And then uh, a lot of times, most days I'll work out. Uh, usually four days a week in the morning mm. time as well. Um, and I try to meditate before coming into the house as well after hours so I can spend more time and be present with the kids, which yep. is hard to do when you're an entrepreneur going 100 miles an hour. So yep. that's my typical routine uh, in the morning time. I try to kick out a few emails after that just to kind of clean them up a little bit. Um, and uh, then I, you know, focus on, you know, what things that I need to get that done that day, you know, and, mm. and focus on, okay, what five things can I kick out? What things are going to, take me five minutes. They're going to make me feel good that I got a bunch of stuff yeah. done, you know, and then let me work on some big projects that are going to take a few hours that I got to really focus yeah. on. And if you have to go back in time, you'd restart all over again. What would you do different? I don't think I'd sell any houses. I would just hold them all, you know, instead. It's really just a resource thing and a mm -hmm. lack of understanding that, um, that I didn't need to flip to make money mm -hmm. to keep the lights on. 
I could yeah. have built in fee structures and things like that into the holds already to do that. Um, mm. And, you know, in addition to that, I would have went bigger faster. So uh, and because of the bang for your buck is just there on bigger projects, you know, yeah. and went a lot bigger, a lot faster on those projects. Got it. Got it. And imagine today is the last day on this planet. And what message do you want to give to the world? What message do I give yes. to the world? Like that's a, Any, that's a anything. question right there. Anything, <laughs> anything you so, can say, like um, anything. So really, I think just living your truth, live your best self, Beautiful. try to be a good person and help people as best you can, as best you can. I really think that helping people is a calling and something that will make true happiness happen in your life. Yeah. And don't forget to live in the moment, like go outside, look at the clouds for five minutes, go and enjoy the breeze, enjoy the time with your kids when, you know, cause it's gone so fast, yeah. you know, go and realize that none of this tor turmoil and everything we see really matters at the end of the day. You know, if you think about all the stress you had from call it the government and everybody else in the world for the last 10 years, right? Mm -hmm. What really occurred that would have changed your life if you didn't worry about any of that at all? right? Yeah. Like yeah. nothing would have really like changed. Yeah. You want to avoid stuff. You want to be aware, but realize, take that step back, live in the moment and realize what's important. And I would say, read those affirmations every single day so that you can actually like have that right mindset because your mindset is literally everything when it comes to your happiness yeah. Uh, yeah. and your ability to let things, you know, roll off your shoulders, be proactive instead of reactive on your daily routines. Got it. That's a really beautiful message. And uh, if somebody has to reach out to you, where can they reach out to you? Uh, they can go to my website at matthewowens.com and reach us that way. One T in Matthew. So M-A-T-H-E-W-O-W-E-N-S.com. There you go. And thank you so much, Matthew, for your time and all this information. And I'll see you on the Phoebe. <laughs> nice. Look forward there you to it. Thank you so much, Matthew. Thank you. Thank you for joining us on The Real Deal, a commercial real estate investing podcast. The show that covers everything to do with multifamily real estate investing to help you become an expert in your real estate ventures. We're here to help you create passive income and financial freedom so that you can achieve what you want whenever you want. We'll catch you next time on The Real Deal.